You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK Principal. David, I trust you are well. I'm well in, here in lockdown Sydney, uh, which is not too different from most of the rest of Australia, I guess, at the moment, Giles. And uh, uh, this yes. week, though, despite lockdown, we, ha- we had uh, scientists uh, coming up with the latest version of uh, what's happening in the world of global warming. Yes, well, no real surprises there. It's um, it's warming. It's already warmed 1.1 degrees, um, or what is it, 1.2 degrees, I think. Um, Australia, the landmass, has already warmed an average of 1.4 degrees. Now, these are all the conclusions from the IPCC sixth assessment report, basically a synthesis of um, all the research that's taken place over the last six or seven years. And, David, the conclusions is that we've got to act fast. We've got to act quickly. Um, we need to be decisive, but um, it's difficult to say whether it's actually got through to the government. If it has, it hasn't created the desired reaction yet. No, not this government. Well, I, I mean, it has. Um, it's, the trouble with these IPCC reports is that they tell us what we already know, and that people tend to have entrenched views. And, they, and I mean, what this report does is to synthesise about 14,000 documents and show how the science has advanced from the last report. Now, it's narrowed down the range uh, of, of things that we can look at and say we'll get to one and a half degrees. And what does that mean in, say, you know, 14 years? Uh, and we can see from the trajectories that the um, commitments made, particularly in Asian countries, and I'm, I'm not signalling them out because they're worse, but the fact of the matter is that they allow a lot more emissions um, to go going forward. So um, uh, yeah. the question is what, what uh, you know, and there's always these calls for urgent action, Giles, uh, um, but does, it do it, does anyone act any more urgently? Well, look, yes. Um, we're actually going to discuss this in more detail with uh, Martina Linluki, who's um, from the Central Corporate Responsibility um, at, at uh, Macquarie University and is also a co-author of one of the IPCC reports, in fact, one of the upcoming ones on adaptation. But, David, um, if politicians don't react from a comprehensive science report like this, what will prompt them to do so? Well, as I understand it, the summary for policymakers involves a dialogue between the scientists and the politicians, uh, just not the Australian ones most likely, uh, on language that they can all agree to. Uh, and I guess if the politicians aren't going to take action, and, and look, we're all going to point at the federal government here, uh, and it's pretty easy to do that, but it's worth pointing out that the opposition has been completely silent this week, pretty much on the topic. Yes. You'd, you'd hardly know the report had been released from their point of view. Um, yes. uh, it, it, it does require them to say something, but it didn't, they didn't. <laughs> you could be a small target, but in the end of the day, you've got to stand up for something or other. But anyway, that's we're not here to talk about politics. Uh, um, so I yeah. think 
what it means, though, is that the finance industry, and that's why it was great to get Martina, uh, is is taking a very active role. And we're seeing uh, lawsuits all over the place. Uh, we're seeing investor action uh, all over the place where it matters. The trouble is, can they actually act in, in Asia to the extent required? It's China and India. Uh, that That's really where the actual outcomes are going to be determined. Well, in the future, yes, but it's no, the fact that we um, need India and China to act is no excuse for Australia not acting, considering the historical responsibilities and the opportunities, the economic opportunities. Well, it's the opportunities, it's the Western world uh, responsibilities, it's your own personal carbon footprint, when mine is certainly nothing to write home about. Uh, but it's also the fact that Australia is either the largest or the second largest uh, exporter of carbon emissions in the world uh, through our third, with a second or largest third fossil fuel exporter. I mean, it's vital to our economic future uh, and there's uh, massive risks in it, which, you know, every company in the stock exchange that's reporting, and we had uh, a big one today, um, uh, is, is so well aware of what investors are doing. Well, that's right. Yeah. And before we get on to AGL, I just actually point out, you mentioned all these court actions and things like that. And one, I did read one really interesting article, it wasn't on Renew Economy, unfortunately, but it did actually talk about how the IPCC report, and because it is that much clearer than its predecessors, will be interesting, uh, will be used um, in future court actions. And um, there's an awful lot of them around the place. I did see a graph the other day about the number of court actions, and it's quite extraordinary. But let's get on to AGL. Now, talking about sort of seeing things change, um, they kind of admitted a few months ago that, um, hang on, the world's uh, the world's going to change. Um, and about two years after you suggested they split in two, they decided to split into two. Um <laughs> What did you make of today's um, profit result? I mean, it wasn't pretty looking. It was all the write-downs, that most of which had already been announced, but um, their operating profits are down. Um, and they're trying to position themselves to get two companies up, one focused on distributed energy and smart things like electric vehicles and solar and batteries and engaging with the consumer, and another one that's going to somehow run down the coal plants and turn those into industrial low emissions industrial hubs what chance do they have david well they may have some chance but i mean you have to look at it again the market is very powerful um and you know the lithium sector we've been talking about here in australia has a market capitalization up over 30 billion dollars now and uh, people love it it might not make any profits but the share uh, on the other hand agl's capitalization market capitalization to give you an idea is only about four and a half uh, billion dollars now so it's like uh, and it's down uh, pretty much almost half what it was a year ago and investors don't really react to those big book write downs because they actually will make next year's book profits go up through in some ways what investors react to is the um, forecast of operating earnings cash earnings for next year uh, which is lower than this year, and this year was down about 18% at the EBITDA level on last year. So it's a challenge, and, and the split-up is a response to that. I actually thought uh, one part of it, this business that's going to be doing the retailing, the story there was reasonably okay. It w wasn't great, but it was it was just average, and you can tell it was average because none of the analysts actually asked too many questions about it. <laughs> uh, all the questions are about the thermal generation side and what's going to happen there, and um, I guess the, the news from the company itself, which again is not completely new, is that the, is that the big coal generators um, are going to run in this new mode of only 
um, they're going to wait till the price goes up before they start pumping out a lot of electricity. And when the price is low in the middle of the day, uh, they're not going to run all that hard. And so that's what we're already seeing uh, recently. Um, yes. we, we, we've seen a couple of quarters of very high electricity prices following the Calide uh, explosion and so the problems with the flooding at your lawn in Victoria. But now, as we move into this uh, time of the year when renewable energy production starts to go zooming up, helped by those uh, relaxation of constraints in South Australia, and also demand becomes relatively soft because uh, uh, we've moved past the time of winter winter heating demand for electricity, uh, then the electricity price in the middle of the day is is pretty much going back to uh, you know ten dollars. Mm. It was interesting to see AGL also this earlier this week um, confirming their big battery uh, at Torrens. Now, they're going to start off with 250 megawatts and one-hour storage because they're going to focus on grid, form, grid services. Most interestingly, grid-forming inverters, virtual synchronous con- um, machines, as, um, as the other t- terminology would, would, would describe them. Um, interesting, um, David, and since we last spoke, um, AEMO also came out and introduced a, released a white paper talking about the need for the grid-forming inverter. So it's kind of happening. We've had a lot of great interviews on this podcast over the last year or a year and a half about um, you know the prospect of grid-forming inverters, but now it seems to be coming a reality. Um, AEMO clearly want to see more of them out there so we can actually understand better how they operate and sort of make this big switch from sort of synchronous to... Um, digital um, well yeah i guess the, the telco equivalent of digital yeah so there are two uh, issues to resolve in getting rid of the coal generators and, uh, and and why there's this talk about a capacity market at the moment uh one one thing is that you know what do you do when the sun suddenly goes down or well, not suddenly the sun does go down every day uh in Australia, and I think most other... this would be a great surprise to all the solar farm owners out there. <laughs> uh, and so we, and as the amount of rooftop solar behind the meter and, and the utility solar is picked up, it's pretty easy to see that in a, three or four years' time, it'll be sixty or seventy percent of the power in the middle of the day. And so that's going to need something else to pick up as the sun goes away. And so the question is, what is that going to be? Now, it can't be coal forever in a day. Coal's pretty ill-suited to the task in the first place, even though the Australian generators are quite flexible, but the Victorian ones aren't. Um, uh, So we've got to replace that. So the capacity market has to incentivise some new dispatchable firming generation uh, and I don't want to get into the argument about what that is but that's what it has to do and then we can get rid of the coal generators but not until then we have to build that new stuff first the second part of it is as you mentioned that the coal generators provide the inertia uh, the inertia which means that the, the the frequency doesn't change much but you know have you ever wondered why what happens when you switch a light on or off does some generator get a signal and start working harder well no it, 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 and it does sort of there's this minute change in the ro- speed at which it rotates uh, and so we need a new control system and it's wonderful to see that the grid forming inverters uh, are start- and the batteries are starting to do that. But I don't, I don't think myself that that paper that AEMO wrote uh, really is only just scratching the surface because there's so much more that can be done with it is we develop a distributed control system uh, where instead of having a few centralised guys that might be doing a good job or a bad job, and in recent years they've been doing a bad job of it and the frequency's been all over the place and so is the voltage, uh, then we can have a much more tightly uh, coupled system that's much more distributed and uh, much more capable of operating independently, for, by which I mean autonomously, I guess. 
And I guess the question is, you talk about this need to sort of build this sort of um, flexible capacity, but I guess my big question is, is it going to be built? We saw also late last week, and I think since the last um, podcast that we did, the ESB release its market rules. Um, you wrote something, muddle-headed wombats. I think that was quite kind. Um, other people are even um, more damning about it. Basically, they listened to all the submissions, the overwhelming um, majority of voices saying, don't do this, and then they went ahead and did it, which is basically the capacity market um, pushed forward by Angus Taylor and a few other people who sort of um, are seeking to oblige him. Um, well, Charles, we, we, we don't know still exactly what sort of capacity market we're going to end up with. That's, well, no, exactly. But that's I guess it's still a problem. I mean, they've been going for three years, the ESB, and they still haven't come up with a proposal. No, uh, and you can still see that the ESB is, is like a whole bunch of bodies that are all writing their own part. The AEMC writes about locational marginal pricing because <laughs> that's a career for a whole lot of theoretical economists and... Uh, <laughs> That's a bit harsh, but I mean, uh, um, uh, and, and the AEMO writes something and, and AER writes something and uh, Kerry Schott, uh, you know, has got to scratch her hair and, and, and work out what to do about it. Uh, the thing about it is, though, that the ESB itself said uh, when it released its options paper, it was the one that said that the idea was of, uh, to get rid of the coal generation and induce the new firming supply. That was what they wrote about what they wanted to do. So that's how I'll judge the capacity market if it comes through. Look, David, we better um, move on to our um, uh, interviewee, um, I guess, for the week. Martina Linluki, she is the uh, head of the Centre for Corporate Sustainability and Environmental Finance at uh, Macquarie University and also an author on the IPC Working Paper 2, which is the Adaptation Report. Martina Linluki, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you um, you head the Centre for Corporate Responsibility and Environmental Finance at the Macquarie Business School at Macquarie University, and we'll get to that um, shortly, but you are also a contributing author to the IPCC 6th assessment, assessment Report, which was released this week. What did, you, what did you contribute? What were you working on there? Yep, so I'm um, a contributor to the um, second part of that assessment report. So that's actually going to come out um, as, a, as a second update report, which we're seeing next year. But it's obviously very much focusing on translating the science contributions that we've seen in the first um, IPCC assessment report now. Um, and we are sort of looking into what that means in terms of, you know, the impacts, the adaptation, the vulnerability, especially also looking at industry um, vulnerabilities and business vulnerabilities and what can be done from an adaptation viewpoint and certainly also from a financial viewpoint. Okay, so you're going to be working on the adaptation one and then that's followed actually by the mitigation one, which is sort yep, of basically yep, that's um, right, you know, yep. how we actually reduce the emissions. Um, I'm not too sure whether you're able to actually give us much um, in, in insight into the adaptation report, considering it's probably still being worked on and under wraps. But what were your big takeaways um, from the report that was actually released this week? Because it certainly delivered... A fairly bleak picture. A lot of it was not new, but I guess for for me, what was was just the urgency, just reinforcing the urgency to act and also removing a lot, of, well, removing just about any doubt that might have been left about the climate science. 
Yeah, I think what what we've definitely seen with the um, IPCC report is, you know, that it has really um, given a very, very strong warning that we need to take the global consequences of climate change really, really seriously and that we need to act now. So it's obviously been 30 years now since the very first IPCC report was ever published. And the first report back then was already making a very strong case that there will be global consequences of climate change. It pointed to the importance of international cooperation. And we've certainly seen some of this happening through the climate change meetings and certainly also through attempts, uh, you know, to actually uh, act on this. So, for instance, the Kyoto Protocol, the Paris Agreement. However, despite that progress, I think we have not yet seen the necessary action to really avert dangerous levels of climate change. And I think the current report is really a warning that it is time to act. It's time to act now. It is providing us a very accurate and comprehensive assessment of the existing research. And I think the biggest uh, outcome of this report is really that the report is saying to us the unprecedented and the extreme events that we are seeing are directly attributed to human activity. So I think that really gives us the strongest warning yet that it is really time to act. I'm not too sure in the first instance whether some of the politicians, at least here in Australia, um, are listening. The response has not been what we would have hoped for. Um, does, do you, why do you think that is? And do you find that really frustrating? Yeah, I think, I mean, we have now got, you know, such comprehensive scientific insights, you know, that human influence is warming the atmosphere, the ocean, the land, that we are seeing widespread and rapid changes in our environment. And these changes are not just occurring in a distant future. They are occurring now. They're really, really impacting us. And I think this is a warning that should be taken very, very seriously. Um, Australia has always been um, impacted by extreme weather events. And what, from what we are seeing within that report, that situation is going to get potentially a whole lot worse if there is not any urgent action being taken right now. The message, as you said, I think hasn't really been taken as seriously as it should um, in po um, political circles. But I think what we are seeing at the moment, um, for instance, also with the coronavirus pandemic, is that scientific warnings should really be taken absolutely and very seriously if we want to avoid any type of future potential catastrophe to happen. So I think, again, um, you know, the politicians should listen to the science that is coming out now. And from what I can see is that these messages are really not coming across and they're not cutting across. And um, I think definitely much more needs to be done here to think about, okay, what can we do now in terms of action to avoid real severe consequences in terms of heat waves, droughts, other types of negative impacts that could also impact Australia. So, Martina, uh, I, I think myself that the politicians do look at the report and they just see it through a political lens. Uh, how will this report affect the next election? Um, and how will it affect our constituencies and how will it affect our financing uh, and all of that sort of thing, you know? Hmm. What, what, um, but I, you, you work in the area of environmental finance, uh, and I guess because around the world and countries like Australia have been uh, relatively slow to react to the science, 
um, the nature kind of abhors a vacuum and the private sector is, is slip, uh, moving into the space. And in particular, you know, the capital flows, uh, the private sector uh, can be expected to think about these things and to price them into their decisions, uh, uh, you know, if they're going to make a difference. Prices are set at the margin by smart people in general, on average. Now, it might not look like that. Um, what's, uh, what, what does environmental finance, you know, how is the movement of capital going and, and, and moving uh, in, in this area? Because it seems, what can you say about that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, essentially what we are seeing at the moment is that there are obviously very substantial investment flows going into um, attempts to move towards decarbonisation, to move to, to move towards renewables. Um, what we see at the moment happening also within the international community is certainly, you know, that there's sort of like a move beyond the discussions of just how do we achieve emission rea- uh, reduction targets to actually look into this question, okay, what needs to be happening in terms of the deployment of renewables, um, you know, what needs to happen in terms of overhauls of the energy and transportation sectors. Um, we also see a lot of discussion around, you know, investments into the hydrogen economy, essentially. So ultimately, there need to be certain, you know, um, or a number of different factors coming together. Um, it's not just obviously private sector investment here, but what we can see also through our research is that in the past, carbon and energy policies, country level public R&D expenditure, all these factors have certainly been real significant contributors for essentially the transition to uh, clean energy. But we are also increasingly seeing private sector interest in this, um, in particular in driving forward the clean energy momentum. And we are seeing a lot of patent activities in that area. And we've also done studies that really sort of, you know, look into um, where patents are being held and how they're currently being developed. And we can overall see that there's just a huge activity across a number of, of major countries and markets that includes China, Japan, the US. So we can really see that this clean tech transition is already underway and, you know, the private sector is certainly interested in coming on board just because there is ultimately such an opportunity here also to be part of that energy transition. So from that perspective, we're definitely seeing a lot of interest in private sector investment. And at the moment, this is certainly fueled as well by the green recovery plans that overseas um, countries and regions have put into place where we ultimately see um, COVID recovery uh, spending tied to this idea that, you know, we need to transition to a green economy in the future. So with investments specifically targeted at clean and renewable energy plans, for instance, or ultimately also climate resilient development. Yes, uh, I guess... You know, when we come to Australia, uh, I think we all understand that in a sense that Europe and even the United States lead the world in thinking about this and, and, and possibly in the area of policy development, well, certainly in the area, but that the reality is that all the carbon emissions actually and all the energy consumption these days mostly happens in Asia. Uh, do you think that um, environmental finance or finance in general can much change, I guess, or uh, move capital around in Asia in the same way that it can 
in 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 Europe and the United States. This is a difficult question, but it, you know the global fund management industry historically has actually been based in in Europe and the USA and ha has affected the de the deployment of capital in Asia to an extent. Yeah, I mean, from what we are seeing at the moment is that there's certainly a huge uptake of renewable energy solutions across Asia. I mean, there obviously, you know, is, is um, much more needs to happen in that space, especially when we look at China and, you know, the significant uh, carbon emissions that are coming out of China at the moment. But I think the country is very well aware that this transition to renewable energy is imminent and that investment is, is needed. So there's certainly not a rapid uh, sort of like immediate transition happening at the moment, but we are certainly seeing that quite a, a fair bit of investment is actually flowing into clean technology solutions at the moment, and that certainly there's also a huge uh, impetus in terms of creating research, creating um, essentially future opportunities as well. So I believe that I think um, a lot of countries in Asia are very well aware of the need to transition, but also of the opportunities that actually come together with that uh, transition. Yes, no, I think, and I'll hand back to Giles in a second, I think there's a tremendous amount of capital going into, uh, you know, that wants to be deployed in the uh, renewable energy and uh, in ESG, environmental, social and governance uh, areas. We've seen new funds uh, all the time. Uh, I guess one of the other big topics, and it's more of an accounting as much as a finance thing, but I think finance has a role to play in the solution to some of these, it's, is is this thing called stranded assets. I mean, what we're seeing is a lot of coal plants being built in China and the whole of the Chinese coal fleet is very young. Uh, and, uh, you know, even part of the Japanese coal fleet is young and, uh, and also in Vietnam. And uh, I mean, this is a difficult question, but do you see that finance has a role in, in dealing with these assets that might be stranded and 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 I guess in in the financing of new gas developments here in Australia and things. How, how, yeah. Yeah, so um, within my centre, we are actually running quite a fair bit of research on sort of, you know, monitoring what's going to happen with stranded assets development in the future as well. I mean, up to this point, we, as you mentioned, we still see quite a fair bit of investment in uh, traditional sort of fossil fuel powered assets. And as a result, um, there's definitely still been appetite for these assets to be developed. But now I think with new policy signals coming in as well, with this new um, climate change report coming out from the IPCC and certainly also the upcoming climate change conference, I think we will see a stronger signal that it is time to phase out uh, fossil fuel assets. So we won't see this transition happen. I think, uh, you know, just like from one month to the next, it would certainly take a few years years for that transition to happen. So from that sort of perspective, and this is also what our research is suggesting, we are not just seeing a sudden total collapse of this entire, you know, fossil fuel driven industry, but ultimately what we are seeing in the future is definitely a shift away from it, which means that these assets will ultimately not generate the long-term return 
that the assets owner might actually be hoping for. So what I think what we are seeing is that, yes, at the moment, the value is definitely still there and it's still strong at the moment. But once the transition kicks in, and especially if the transition continues in a very rapid fashion, then I think in a few years' time, we will definitely see that the fossil fuel assets are not quite as desirable anymore as uh, renewable energy sources. And I think that's why we are also seeing at the moment such a strong push, for instance, you know, China has already established itself as a leading country in renewable energy sources, um, you know, looking into um, renewable power from hydro, from solar, from wind. Um, so, you know, from that point of view, I think we are seeing that transition. And once we reach a certain threshold, I think that's the, when we actually see the point um, where we see more of these stranded assets or ultimately um, capacity that is no longer usable or is no longer going to be used in the same way that we're using it at the moment. We certainly got a taste of that with the AGL results um, this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> big write downs, sea of red, and an admission that basically the market is moving from baseload, which is basically their sort of core earnings, to flexible capacity, which they're now trying to build and trying to split the market, their company into two to try and um, facilitate that transition. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that operates from them. Um, in your piece that you wrote for a new economy this week, I mean, you did vent your frustration about the way the IPCC report had been received and particularly with the federal government. Now, we all know that the state governments um, have got net zero targets, as do the territories. So it just seems to be a formality that the federal government should do the same, but they won't. What would you have the federal government do? And I, I just get from the IPCC report that really a net zero by 2050 isn't actually good enough. I mean, it's probably the minimum. It's a down payment, but um, more needs to be done. And certainly um, there's got to be a question about the scale of interim targets. Yeah. I mean, the IPCC report is sending, I think, a number of, of very important messages. And that's ultimately, I think one of the big messages is really that we need to see that deep carbon pollution reduction now um, to actually retain a possibility um, of, of remaining within the 1.5 degree Celsius target. So obviously, the longer we wait with achieving um, those types of um, carbon cuts, um, you know, the longer ultimately, I think, um, or well, let's let's put it that way, the less likely it will be for us to remain within the 1.5 degree uh, target, which means that we, have, we, we will see more significant impacts of climate change as a result in the future. Mm. Um, I think the IPCC, and we saw that also in the re press release that was put out and also the statements by the UN Secretary uh, General, um, ultimately the message was there should be an immediate hold on new um, coal power plants. There should ultimately be a strong push to phase out existing coal by 2030, um, that countries should ultimately end fossil fuel exploration and production, that, you know, there should be a rapid shift to, to um, ultimately renewable energy, uh, the uptake of, of renewable energy. So I can sort of see that these targets are already not quite palatable for um, mm. certainly, you know, the, the Australian <laughs> um, politicians at the moment. I think if someone already says, you know, um, fossil fuel exploration and production should be stopped, I can already see, you know, that, that that's not necessarily in line with, with what the government is. Yes, well, not just, in Australia. Not just 
Yeah, not just not necessarily. Um, it would make them choke in their wheaties in the morning. Yeah. Um, and, and worse than that, yeah, tell me one of the th- one of the things that worries me, particularly when we're talking about this need to act quickly to um, sort of you know, cap the limits at one point five. And if we overshoot, then maybe we'll have to row back by having negative emissions and sort of sucking them out of the air or whatever. Like, I'm not too sure. One of the things that worries me is these tipping points. Um, and yeah. you know, I see the melting of the tundra um, in Siberia, and you see those forest fires up there, and you see the melting ice. What does the IPCC report say about tipping points and the risk that this thing could get away from us? Yeah, so what the IPCC report does is essentially it gives us a number of uh, different future scenarios. So essentially, you know, the best case is that we act rapidly, we act now, we listen to the science, right? We put all these measures into place. But, you know, there is definitely also a worst case scenario portrayed in this report. And the worst case scenario is that we are delaying action, that we wait, that we are not really putting these measures into place quickly enough and potentially don't reach the uh, carbon emission reduction targets. So that's obviously the type of situation that we want to avoid, right? But, you know, the, I think the, the message really is that the longer we wait, the less action that we undertake, the more likely it is that we would see those types of tipping points that you're mentioning. And that includes, for instance, you know, uh, sea ice loss, um, that includes the potential of seeing rapid sea level rise, of actually seeing more extremes coming out in the future as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's essentially the type of, of scenario that we want to avoid, to see those abrupt responses, uh, tipping points of the climate system. And, um, yeah, the longer we wait, the less we do, the, lo- the more likely it is essentially that we are seeing those really extreme and undesirable outcomes. But I think the message is also that we can act and that we should act. And I think it's essentially just giving us a really strong call for action to do something about this now so that we can avoid this type of undesirable future. David? Oh, well, I was just trying to think of how to finance this, you know, uh, uh, we saw the Blueprint Institute, for instance, suggesting that companies could, uh, coal generators could bid in uh, the value, you know, essentially the uh, amount they'd like to be paid to close now in an orderly fashion. Uh, and, you know, we can give uh, financing tax concessions, maybe R&D uh, or price subsidies, uh, um, to to finance alternatives to coal, I mean, and also to give the various interest groups, so the coal miners, the CFMEU, um, give them, um, uh, you know, a way forward that will make them, uh, incentivise them to want to be uh, accept change. I think a carbon price is still by far the most over economy-wide uh, best way of doing it, and it's a shame the Labor Party is too gutless to be up for the fight anymore. Uh, but uh, um, that's—I just wondered what 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 are the developments in finance about uh, the, the the most innovative ways? You know, where's the cutting edge? The, where do you get the most policy bang for the buck? Yeah. I mean, I think in in order to really achieve that rapid transition that is required, we probably need to have ultimately, you know, multiple options that come together, right? I think the carbon pricing debate is sort of no longer 
really politically desirable in Australia. So I think this is perhaps a, a, a real challenge to kind of, you know, revisit that as a, as a political option. But as you said, you know, there are other opportunities available, uh, available. We certainly need from a financial perspective, you know, a really clear plan what's going to happen in terms of, you know, incentivizing renewable energy uptake. And that can happen through a number of different avenues that can mean, you know, direct, um, incentives for um, actually building up this industry, right? It could mean a shift of fossil fuel subsidies into renewable energy, which has happened in, in other jurisdictions as well. That could certainly be a greater consideration of how we can use the current coronavirus spending to actually achieve these types of outcomes, right? I mean, we have seen just so much money being poured into the economy at this point in time, but I think it hasn't really been used in order to build up something new and something else. So I think in in terms of, you know, achieving future targets that would be very worthwhile as well for the government to look into how can this funding actually be used, you know, to, to generate the next generation of uh, power supply that this country would actually need. Um, we certainly also need to look into building up solar and wind capacity. So the IPCC has also made it very clear that, you know, ultimately we need to see a much stronger uptake here in Australia, certainly not leading in this area. So it could be really, it could really come down to incentivizing um, industry, um, well, the industry and also companies in that area to really build up capacity in Australia, right? So make it easier for companies to gain these types of approvals um, and ultimately also, you know, put some, um, some, some support there in terms of, you know, policies, funding support to really make sure that, that we, we do build up this, um, this type of capacity that's needed. Um, from a political level, what we are certainly also not seeing is a strong commitment to any type of emission reduction target. And I think this is also really challenging because the existing target is basically saying, okay, we want to re reduce carbon emissions um, by 26 to 28% um, below uh, 2005 levels. And this is ultimately a goal that's looking up to 2030. Um, that might seem a lot, but it is really well behind the targets that have been set by other nations. So the US, for instance, has committed to a 50% reduction target. And overall, we see a much greater push internationally to move towards net zero. And I think that's a debate that is also politically really missing in Australia, right? So what kind of target do we want to see in the future? And how does that then translate into specific actions that need to be taken? And how can we then put support into place to ultimately reach those types of targets or outcomes? Yeah. So I think because there is no real clear target in place, it also ultimately means that there's no clear climate change target flowing from it and no clear national energy policy and certainly no clear transition policy. Because if we don't really know where we are sort of transitioning to, um, I think that makes it really hard to work out the exact pathway for Australia resulting from that. Well, that's right, yeah. And and, and certainly um, the, the Labour Party, Chris Bone, was given the opportunity to put forward Labour's point of view, but um, as he did in this podcast a couple of weeks ago, spoke very well, but just wouldn't be engaged in any targets. And you just think, well, what's the point of an opposition if at this stage it's still not ready to seize on something like the IPCC report and go, let's go 45% or 50%, but clearly they oh. have issues to resolve in their own party. Um, Martina, I'm just fascinated by the IPCC process. Um, is it, um, it's, you know, it's not new 
research is basically how would you describe it is a is it a synthesis of the research what are all you people doing are you just kind of kind of agree <laughs> on a, on how it all forms together i mean do you have rabble rousers in this or either pushing it too far or trying to hold it back or does the whole sort of mix of just kind of wash out in the end um sort of describe what happens if you can yeah if you're allowed to <laughs> uh, yeah well i can i can definitely describe the the general process behind it right so i mean the ipcc is not commissioned to um, undertake new research so that's that's i think a very important um, point and that's because the role of the ipcc is essentially to provide an overview over all the existing findings and studies and insights that we do have available so the um, whole idea of the IPCC is essentially for all those involved. So that means, you know, the um, authors contributing to the chapters, the lead authors. So what's been done is essentially to look into, okay, what has been published in terms of, you know, the best scientific evidence that we do have available. And um, the IPCC is looking into, especially into the period since the last assessment report came out, um, so the last um, assessment uh, reports came mm. out in 2013 and 2014. So essentially the focus is to understand, okay, what new insights do we have uh, since and what does it actually mean in terms of, you know, the physical um, impacts that we are seeing from climate change and what do we now know about what's happening in terms of adaptation and mitigation. So the fact that it's actually sort of like a synthesis is basically means it's, it's a reasonably conservative document because it's not, it's not an outlier because it's not sort of seizing on one piece of research and going, hey, look, you know, we're in trouble here. It's actually just looking at a sort of a whole range of, of documents and research. It's agreed on by goodness knows how many hundreds of different people. Um, so by its nature, it has to be sort of reasonably sort of, you know, middle of the road almost. Yeah, I think it combines definitely, you know, all the different viewpoints together. So that means, you know, it's not just focusing on those kind of studies, you know, that are giving us the best and the worst outcomes. It is essentially trying to objectively look at the entire body of evidence that we do have available. And um, yes, because it is focused on already published research and it is synthesizing that research, it is definitely you know, in its views, um, I wouldn't necessarily conservative, but I would say, you know, it's it's just sort of providing this, um, this it's, ultimately it's, a yeah, robust assessment of what's been what's right. been done up to this Fair point. Enough. Yeah, and maybe just one final question for me. Maybe David has one afterwards, but um, just for me, adaptation. Um, I imagine that that's just basically how society deals with these changes. Is it all about building seawalls and sort of burying ourselves in tunnels and things like that, or is it what's it? <laughs> Um, no, what, what we are looking at ultimately, right, without foreshadowing all the findings that are going to come out, right, but, but what we are really trying to understand is, you know, what can happen um, in terms of, you know, what are all the different options and avenues that we do have available uh, to respond to these types of uh, uh, current and future changes that are coming out um, from the report. So it's really coming down to, you know, what do we know about measures that have worked, what hasn't worked potentially, right? Where are limitations in terms of adaptation? So it is really looking into ultimately drawing together um, the best possible insights that we have available at the moment um, for responding to these types of changes and certainly also for trying to avoid future changes. Um, so, you know, that, that is ultimately tied to this idea of mitigation. So what can be done to really 
um, um, reduce carbon emissions and to transition us to, to a cleaner energy system. Yeah. Well, look, I hope we actually get um, going on the mitigation because with the adaptation, I don't think we're all going to fit into New Zealand and Tasmania. So we're going to have a bit of an issue there. So, um, look, David, I'm not too sure. Do you have any other questions? No, that's been uh, fascinating uh, to, to hear. Thank you, Martina. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and, and good luck with the uh, with the next task, the adaptation report uh, coming out. When do we expect it? Um, we should have that um, at the beginning of 2022. So um, we can report back then at that point in time. With, Another with delicious, from that report. Hmm. Another deliciously complex 1,000-page document. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Martina. Um, thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, that was Martina Linluki from the um, Macquarie University and co-author of the IPCC report, um, second working paper. David, um, yes, the science, um, I guess we've heard a lot about that this week. Interesting, some of uh, Martina's remarks about the corporate the corporate shift. And that's just going to be, as we said at the start of this podcast, just so fundamentally important. Yeah, that and uh, finance and also the accounting standards and the risk that company boards and management uh, leave themselves open to if they don't do adequate disclosure. Every coal company out there knows its investors uh, uh, just worry about coal generation, but you only need a couple of uh, people who want to sue them. And if they haven't done a good job describing the risks in accordance with the advice from the accounting standards boards and uh, uh, the overall uh, global standards, then then that's a worry. It is indeed. David, I think we've um, occupied enough time on the airwaves today. I'd like to thank you um, once again. Um, I'd like to thank Martina for joining us uh, for this podcast. I'd like to thank everyone out there listening to this podcast and for your kind of feedback and for continuing to listen, on, as well as our sponsors, of course, Pylon and Evergen. And we'll be back again around about this time next week. Bye for now. Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.